Welcome, everyone. This is the Bread of Life, and I'm Joel Van Hoogen. I'm the director of the international mission, Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about our work and to inquire how you can help us raise up disciple-making disciples, go to traincpe.org. I'm also the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. You can learn more about our fellowship by going to breadoflifeboise.org. Today, we again go back into our archives about 20 years and continue a study in the lives of the Twelve Apostles. We have been looking at the life of Thomas the Apostle, that one who has been immortalized by the nickname Doubting Thomas. And we are now in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. This is the account from which Thomas earned his nickname. He refuses to believe that Jesus has risen from the grave as the other disciples tell him. He insists that first he must thrust his hand into the wounds in Jesus' own hands and side. Jesus will appear before Thomas and order Thomas to place his fingers into the wounds. And the result is this, that doubting Thomas gives history the greatest confession of who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. Thomas falls before Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We'll begin reading in verse 19. And we are studying the last account in which we find Thomas saying something or acting. Here's what we read, beginning in verse 19. And let's read down to verse 31. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And just in case uh, you didn't know it, Christ has, uh, prior to this, been crucified. The disciples have all seen it take place. He's been put in the tomb. This is where, at this point in time, the disciples think that he still remains. But Christ appears to them, stands in their midst, and says unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, now we're at the next Sabbath day or next Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. Again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. How wonderful that Jesus gives the exact same statement. He's replaying the whole event, this time for Thomas. Then said he unto Thomas, Reach here thy finger, behold my hands. Reach here thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord 
and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You know, there are no shortages of audacities in the Christian faith, in the claims of Christianity. If you really begin to understand what we claim about the person of Jesus Christ, we know that most of the things that we claim about him go beyond the realm of what people would consider possible. They are concepts and ideas that the rational mind would obviously oftentimes dismiss right offhand. For example, let me just mention a few of them. We say that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. We say that Jesus walked on water. We say of Jesus of Nazareth that he is the Savior of the whole world. We say that Jesus died for man's sins, that he rose again from the grave, after which Christ, Jesus, ascended into heaven. We say that Jesus is the only way through which man may enter into a relationship with the one true God. Now, those are audacious claims. If you don't believe them, go out on the street and make them to the next person you see and see if there's not a hint of unbelief that this is beyond credibility when you tell him. Go overseas and share this with individuals in the right place. They would not only disagree with you, they might pick up stones to point out how strongly they disagree with you. But of all the audacious claims that we make about Jesus Christ, here's the boldest claim of all. We say this, Jesus of Nazareth is God. Jesus of Nazareth is God, and this is, folks, the most audacious claim of all. We're not saying that Jesus, when we say this, is another God. We are saying that he is the one and only creator God. We are saying that Jesus is the God who is before all things, who is in all things, and will be after all things. We are saying that Jesus is the one in whom all existence finds their source. He is the everlasting creator God. The Bible says of God, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And we could say, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art Jesus. Because this is what we're saying. Jesus is God. Not one in a succession of gods. Not one in a pantheon of gods. Not one in an evolutionary process of the birth of multiple gods. But the one and only eternal God that was and is and is to come, this is Jesus. This is the man that we call Jesus of Nazareth. This is God. This is a rather bold and audacious claim. It's the claim that the disciples made. You know, it's interesting that if you read in the book of Acts, you'll read the account in Acts chapter 10 in which Peter comes before the Gentile Cornelius. And Cornelius, when he sees Peter, because God has told Cornelius that God was sending someone to him to bring to him the word of God. When Cornelius sees Peter, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet in an act of reverence. And Peter said to him, get up. Peter's uncomfortable with this act. He says, get up, for I am only a man myself. 
And then if you go on and read in, in Acts chapter 14, you'll read the account of Paul and Barnabas, and they go into the city of Lystra, and there in the city of Lystra, they heal a paralyzed man, and the people of the city come out and they see this wonderful, miraculous act, and they suppose as a result that Paul and Barnabas are gods, Greek gods, and they begin to bow down and worship them. And the Bible says that when Paul and Barnabas realized what the people were doing, that they tore their clothes and they ran out among the crowd of people and said to them, why are you doing this? Stop this. We are only men like yourselves. You'll read in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, at the very end of all the different events that have taken place in which the Apostle John has had one miraculous revelation after another come upon him, the last being a revelation of the city that God will bring down upon the earth, a revelation of all the glory of heaven. And we read at the end of this revelation that John says that he fell at the feet, he bowed at the feet of the angel who showed him all of these things. And the angel said to John, you'll read it in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 22 of Revelation, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. And then the angel says to John this, do not do it. Worship God. It's interesting that throughout the gospel accounts of the life of Christ, though, there are any number of times in which individuals come and fall at the feet of Jesus in acts of reverence and honor. And never once, never once does Jesus ever correct them. Never once does he say, do not do it. Never once does he say, I'm a man just like yourselves. On every occasion, Jesus never rebuffs their worship. And now when Thomas comes into the presence of Jesus and Jesus says, Thomas, I want you to take your finger and thrust it in the nail pen. And here, Thomas, thrust your hand into my side. We read the account and we're told that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And we're not told the posture that Thomas physically took. But none of us can read the account without imagining. And I think with an enlightened imagination that at this point in time, Thomas is saying the words as he is clinging to. He's put his finger into the nail prints because Jesus commanded him to do it and he obeyed. And he has taken his hand and he's put it into his side because Jesus has commanded him to do it. He asked to see the nail prints in his hand. He asked to see the thrust of the sword mark in his side. He did not mention his feet. But at this moment in time, we have to believe that Thomas is now lying before his feet, the nail marked feet worshiping him and he is saying my lord and my god peter corrected cornelius paul and barnabas corrected the people of lystra the angel corrected john but jesus does not correct thomas he does not say do not do it because thomas got it right jesus accepted the words and the worship of thomas as appropriate and true. Why? Because Jesus is, understand this, Jesus is God. I'd like for a moment for us to dissect this confession that Thomas made and understand what it was that Thomas was confessing. 
you know, if you study all of the Bible up to this point in time, beginning in the book of Genesis, and you read all the way through to the end of the book of John, and you come to this statement by Thomas, what you need to understand is that this is the greatest confession that has been made up to this point in time in all of history. This is the greatest confession that is made of Jesus Christ throughout all of the history of Christ's life upon the earth. Not Peter's statement, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That wasn't the greatest statement. Not Nathaniel's statement when Jesus had revealed to him that he saw him under the fig tree and said, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. That's not the greatest statement. This is it right here. This is the most conclusive statement that is made throughout all of the counts of biblical history. The greatest confession up to this point that was ever made and it's made by Thomas, the one we've been studying, the one whom we've determined was a person who so much of the time seemed to be a little bit in the dark, the one who all the experts say was a person whose mind was always given to see the dark side of things, who was a bit of a pessimist. Thomas, the one who we've seen all of his weaknesses, makes the greatest confession of all. He says very shortly, very briefly, my Lord and my God, and in saying it, Thomas draws to a conclusion the very proposition that John seeks to make at the very beginning of his gospel. And now John records this account of what Thomas said at the end of his gospel to help us understand that what John was proposing to be true when he began to write his gospel was right. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Thomas punctuates John's statement. Thomas completes John's argument. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of church partnership, evangelism, and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. We are at work to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, and we need your prayers and your support. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.